0: This episode is brought to you by Veen Italy International Academy, the toughest Italian wine program. 1,000 candidates have produced 262 Italian wine ambassadors to date. Next courses in Hong Kong, Russia, New York, and Verona. Think you make the cut? Apply now at veenitalyinternational.com. My name is Stevie Kim, and welcome to the Italian Wine Club, the clubhouse, Italian Wine Clubhouse here. I think it's it's been nearly a year since we have started the Italian Wine Club, and we've been hosting pretty much every week since the get-go. So today, you know what the deal is here, right? Or You know the drill. This is called the Ambassador's Corner, and today it's a fireside chat with Clemens Lageda, And our guest host is Stefan Metzna, one of our Italian wine ambassadors. So this is where basically our ambassadors get a chance to interview their favorite producer. So you know that this is on replay. And thank you so much, very, very much from the bottom of our heart, from our team, for joining us at Italian Wine Podcast, because this does get replayed on the podcast. As you've known, I've been touting... That we've started in 2017, and for about with 23,000 listens, and we've ramped that up very, very quickly to last year, and we've had one million listens last year just on SoundCloud. And believe it or not, in January we had 200,000 listens, and this is all thanks to also the Ambassadors Corner, one of our most popular um, episodes, and and on the Italian wine podcast. So today I'd like to introduce to you your guest host from Armad Squad, Stefan Metzner. Ciao Stefan. Ciao Stevie, how are you doing? So where, where are you now?
2: Uh, actually I'm based in Munich and
0: right now I'm home in uh, in my office. And what, what is the situation with COVID in, in Germany right now, in Munich in particular? Well <clears throat> it is um,
2: a little bit very confusing because every Bundesland means every state has quite various regulations being in Bavaria makes it rather relaxed so we have no more forced closing times in in restaurants it's all open but you need to be vaccinated that, that's about all the rest becomes a, a rather normal life
0: so have you gone back to kind of your normal you know work life in terms in the wine realm at least are you doing tastings are you teaching? traveling much? Well, traveling is is
2: still a little bit unsecure because the the regulations from other countries are changing constantly. Mm -hmm. But I run a WSET wine school in Munich and I'm teaching all year long. All my classes can can be done. So that's very good. And also I organized the first two tastings, live tastings after, well, nearly two years. And it seems that Restrictions will be will be lowered, and it becomes more easy to go back to your regular life. So basically, right now we are in a in a really comfortable situation where you can say, as long as people are vaccinated and they're wearing the mask where, wherever it's needed, you can have a, a a normal life. A part of that.
0: Okay, so Stefan, for those of you who've not uh, met him, he started his career as a psalm. And he is like you, he's just mentioned that a certified W said educator. He runs a school, it's called Wine Institute München, right? Perfect. Yeah, my German. This is, this is the reason why I go to roost. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. And then it, here in his bio, it says he's been in the wine business for three decades. That kind of makes you sound like you're old. Unfortunately, that's true. <laughs> I can't deny it anymore <laughs> yeah we're all, yeah, we're all dating ourselves um so listen, and of course, he has very certification. He is like I said, the most important thing about him is that he is, of course, our via Italian wine ambassador. He's also um, teaches courses for us, so he is a certified Italian wine educator, and he's also um, specialist in Valpolicella. so tell us why. You have chosen Clemens Lageda as your favorite producer today.
2: Well, you know, um, when I started with Tenuta Lageda, that was in 1994, just to give you an impression of how old Mm -hmm. I really am. I was already impressed not only by the wines, but also by the way Alois, so Clemens' father, uh, approached winemaking and his entire running of the business. And that has continuously developed in an impressive matter since then. And then when Clemens took over, he followed that direction in, in a more or even more holistic, sustainable approach to winemaking, continuously improving the processes and actions. And I'm very lucky to have been welcomed to his winery several times, meanwhile, and see firsthand and learn about that development since then. Okay, so,
0: so how long how long did you work at Laggeda?
2: Well, I did not work at Laggeda. I I took over a, a retail so my wine business mm-hmm. in '94, and uh, Laggeda. Oh, wines. you
0: started working with Laggeda. Yeah, Sorry. and Laggeda
2: wines then already were in the portfolio, and soon after I took over, one of my first visits. Uh, to, to wineries from the portfolio was one to to, uh, to the Largator winery which then was run by Alois Largator. And since then I'm I'm a I'm a big fan of both the people and well as as Largators as people as well as, as the producers and of course the wines.
0: So you know, we always ask this question too because we we try to get a little bit geeky about the um the calls that we do. We have fun, but we we want to be a little bit um educational, right? So, what should we expect from this call? What are the learning objectives that we should uh, bear in mind? I think that uh,
2: we have agreed on. I mean, everybody has agreed on when we talk about sustainability. We refer to actions taken in the vineyard and maybe in the cellar. And that is enormously important, no doubt. However, we will broaden the spectrum of sustainability and talk about social sustainability as well. And then we will talk in that context about his new projects, which is, uh, first of all, a project that Clemens introduced to the winery, which is the Comet Wines. His rediscovery or refocusing on autochthonous, old, ancient Italian varieties. And we thought that um, we do this best by talking about it and then later share uh, tasting expressions of a Platale out of his latest Comet series that Clemens uh, previously shared with me.
0: Okay, that's fantastic. So I'm just going to grab a drink. I actually have it in my um, my podcast booth already because... Three of our um, colleagues, friends, came by be, to celebrate their diploma. So we have three more Italian diploma holders.
2: Congratulations! Um, Big yeah, achievement. it was
0: Luca and Giovanni and, um, and Nicola, but also Xiaowen. She, she's she's just finished, and um, I see Anda um, in the audience, and as well as Renata from our school. So. If, really really excited about that congratulations to them very very much okay i'm going to leave you Uh, i will shut up which you you know that rarely happens so you should take advantage of that Stefan, (laughs) as you know and i will um pop by later if there are any um questions uh from the audience if there's any time okay ragazzi. thank you
2: stevie thanks all right So everybody in the audience, thanks for joining us and thank you, Clemens, for being here. Why don't you just, I mean, give us a brief introduction of who you are and and what your bio is so far and maybe together with an overview of the history and the development of your winery.
3: I'm extremely happy to to join and I am delighted that you have chosen our winery uh, for this um, uh, call and for the podcast. So thanks a lot for that, and uh, yeah, my name is uh, Clemens Lageda and I'm um, yeah, as the sixth generation in our winery, and together with my two sisters, I'm um, I'm leading the winery since one and a half years, and uh, I joined actually the winery in two thousand fifteen. Mm-hmm. I was on the road for. Uh, approximately 10, 11 years. Um, experiencing, experiencing different things. Uh, started actually with sociology and after my degree I went to Geisenheim and then I went to Burgundy and from that uh, moment on I, I um, went to New York to experience a little bit also the market and the business side of, of the business. And then I went to Luxembourg to uh, work for an agricultural Agriculture, um, company, we was dealing with, um, also not only wine, but also, um, uh, food and, and biodynamic food and, and all the, yeah, different, um, uh, products. And then I went, came back in 2015 and, uh, yeah, my father and I, uh, spoke about our future plans and what we want to, how we want to proceed. And then slowly, slowly, um, my father gave over the winery um, to me and then uh, yeah, also my two sisters joined and I'm involved now. So yeah, that's a little bit about my, my bio.
2: Thank you, Clemens. So when Alois finally gave over the winery to, to the next generation um, and you split it with your two sisters, which part of the winery did you take over or, or which part of the wine production do you focus on?
3: Um, I mean, there's always a difference between, uh, yeah, ownership and, and responsibility. And for me, it was important that, um, of course, in Italy, or I think in other parts of the world as well, that, uh, in our past generation, it was more common to, uh, give the winery to one person, uh, which for me, it wasn't, um, interesting or not the case. I didn't felt it, uh, right. And, um, so it was more, um, yeah, uh, looking forward that all three of us, um, would, um, uh, have, uh, similar shares or the same shares. So that's from, uh, ownership. And then there's a difference of, uh, of course, being responsible. And there, um, I, I, um, in a certain way are the, um, the CEO of the winery. And, uh, I'm more focusing on the production side. So on, on winemaking and on, on agriculture. And my sister, my younger sh- sister, she joined in 2018 and took over from my side the, the whole marketing and PR area and uh, more also certain markets like uh, more the Asian markets, also certain parts of Europe. I'm more focused in a- certain areas in Europe and also US and Canada more. And, um, and then my oldest or our older sister, she is organizing, for example, Suma, Suma, which is a, a wine fair which we held in our, in our winery, where we have also 100 other wineries from all over the world invited, which this year will finally take place again on the 9th and 10th of April. And so she's organizing these kind of uh, events, bigger major events in our winery.
2: A lot of things to do. You are a big winery after all. <laughs> so when you took over, you followed straight on in the footpath of biodynamic wine production. Let's see, at this stage when, when you, say, join the winery, how did you further develop? And is there anything that you can share um, what you're planning for the foreseeable future?
3: Well, many things, because I think uh, I think biodynamic, um, it's an ideal where you can get close to, but would um, have shown a little 100 years ago. And the world completely changed in the last 100 years. So I don't think that we yeah, or let's say I, I think that we need to reinterpret also biodynamics, uh and bring it to the current uh, situation, the current life. And so when I joined, I think um I would say that maybe at the beginning, uh, when my father started with biodynamics in two thousand four, uh, or he already did start to experiment in the nineties. But I would say that he converted all. Our family owned vineyards of in 50, in, uh, 55 hectares in 2004. I would say that at that time, you need to think there were no consultants. There were no. There were a few wineries doing biodynamic maybe in Burgundy or in France, but in Italy it was kind of, uh, yeah, not not many people uh, knew about it, or especially especially in the practice in the practice, and so I think they focused more on the preparation. They focused more on reading steiner um understand how and what he thought about how to deal with lunar cycles and the planetary system and i think um the, the generation my generation um of course preparations are important the lunar cycles are important as well but i think my generation is can uh, focus also thanks to the experience of of the of uh, my father's generation we can uh, focus more on developing the whole system and to trying to build a holistic approach and that's when we when we we see that actually as a, a very pragmatical approach where we we need to break up monoculture that's the main um goal and we need to the, the reason why we need to break up monoculture is because we need to focus on fertility of our soils and a good farm 100 years ago was and uh, he exactly knew that he only was, is capable to increase fertility and, um, through a huge, through building up biodiversity. So I think that our, my approach is more, uh, yeah, was how can we bring in cows in the rows and in the vineyards and how can we bring sheep in the vineyards? How can we work better with compost and, and with manure? How can we uh, dig in deeper in the whole? uh cover crop system and these kind of things and, and uh where to to uh see which cover crop in order to uh increase diversity on different root system and so on. So I think this um the the yeah, thanks to the experience and to the more theory, theoretical approach maybe from a from from the older generation, we were then able to bring it to another step and bring it to a more practical approach. Sounds, a like, approach.
2: Yeah, sounds like a lot of work. And I'm, I'm soon trying to dig in, into, in that holistic concept. But before we do that, I, I want to go back. So you said in 2004, you had 55 hectares. How big is the winery now? And how much do you own? And how much do you sort of rent? And also, how many wines are you producing? I'm not talking volume in bottles, but, but different labels.
3: Um, The winery itself, we still have approximately 55 hectares, so maybe change some... Some vineyards, or uh, but I would from uh, say from a family point of view, it stayed the same. Uh, what we um, developed um, was uh, we in Alto Adige. It's an old tradition to to collaborate with small farmers. I mean, a farmer normally has the average approximately one, 1. 1.5 hectares. So it's an old tradition um, the, that uh, farmers sell the grapes on uh, a trust. Um, in a certain way, so it's all by handshake, and so we work a- approximately with 80, 90 farmers, um, with some of them, even though it's just a handshake contract, um, with more, more than since more than 40, 50 years, and um, so here there is a little bit more movement, maybe, especially now that um, we decided or. Ten years ago, we started to motivate our farmers slowly, slowly to work organically and biodynamically. And at the moment, we have approximately eighty percent of those eighty farmers, uh, ninety farmers, are working organically and biodynamically. And we we set ourselves the goal that in twenty twenty five we want to be, no uh, twenty four we want to be, to have all our farmers converted to organic and biodynamic. So all the hundred percent. So that's why there will be a little bit mo- uh, a little movement because some of the farmers and I, we need to accept it they don't want to deal with organic or biodynamic farming at, at all and we might lose those farmers but there are certain new ones who uh are coming up and who are more interested in in uh we are working their vineyards in or in an organic or biodynamic way so we get them maybe a phone call and the, uh, saying we're yeah, uh, new farmers might join the club in a certain way, and uh, so there's a movement which I would say in total we have approximately hundred, fifty hundred sixty hectares we're dealing we're dealing with. That's uh,
2: quite a substantial amount of grapes. So how how many different labels do you produce
3: out of that? <laughs> um, approximately with the Comet series, which are wines that uh, change from yeah every year actually. We do have approximately 45.
2: Do, do you have a rough estimate of the split between white and red
3: wines? Yeah, I would those? say that I would say that Alto Andige nowadays is approximately, and I would say the same is for us, approximately 65-70 white, and the rest is uh, red, and which actually in Alto Antige uh, not that long time ago, uh, 30 years ago, was the complete, or 40 years ago, was the complete opposite. Atuanica was known much more for, for red grapes, and uh, okay. especially Schiava and lagrange And now it's uh, yeah more known for whites. Thank you. So for those um, who
2: have missed the part I didn't say, which is hard to miss anyway, um, the, the Alles Lagida winery is located in Magreit which is the southern west part, so it's on the western slopes of Alto Adige, where you do have uh, a slight more moderate climate than in, in the northern parts. Therefore, you can have um, more focus on on red wines because you have a, a longer ripening period and, and, a, and a warmer climate than, than the far north. Now, let's go to the main topic. I mean, everybody is talking about sustainability these days, but in my understanding, when you followed up, you took a different level in this holistic approach to sustainability. You've talked about how to break up monoculture, how to gain the measurements in order to to get the fertility of the soils at least constant, if if not even increasing them by introducing cover crops and by introducing farm animals within the vineyards. Um, but there is also a, a a wider range in being holistic. So, how do you do the biological and social environment? What What are you doing in in those aspects?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good, um, good question, which we continuously, I think, need to develop. Um, I think not, it's not only about the, the agricultural um, part. No, I mean that's a big plays a big role, and I think it's, uh, yeah, it's getting more important. Not only to save uh, emission or reduce emission, but especially we farmer, we have a huge responsibility in trying to find ways in saving or yeah, how can you say it, uh, fixing more CO two in this in the soil. So that's why it's, I think important to increase fertility and uh, humus of our of our units. But then, of course, um, for example, I, I don't know, my, my father already in the ninety ninety five started to build a new winery on a, on a, yeah, you know, where he only used, uh, uh, alternative energy systems. So no fuel, no, uh, gas, for example, or everything is by gravity, by gravity pad. Uh, I think now with with the latest, what we did, um, we finally, we moved all our wines in in uh, lightweight glass bottle, bottles. So far, um, 450 grams, and now we're gonna reduce them to 420 grams. And the tricky thing is that, of course, the consumer still today thinks a lot about that. Or often, you have the feeling that a a, a good bottle of wine needs to have a, a high weight in a c- certain way. Now, and this is, I think, something what we what we need to change because it's it's crazy. How much, uh, CO2 and how, yeah, how much emissions you can, uh, reduce in, in moving to a lighter glass bottle. So this is, I think, uh, something what, what needs to be, uh, also developed. And, and we, a uh, couple of years, two, three years, we also get rid of the capsula, which is made with, uh, of, of heavy, true heavy metals or out of heavy metal. And we close it with a paper ribbon. So, I think there are many things in order to, which you, which we need to develop and, uh, to get better and better. And I think, of course, um, I mean, it's not only, it shouldn't not only be my intention, but it should also be, uh, that's something what we are working on, the intention of all our, um, employees. And that's why I think, yeah, we need to, um, give also the possibility that everyone, um, yes, uh, thinks in the, in a similar direction.
2: I imagine that's quite a challenge. I mean, with 160 hectares, it's not you and your father running the entire thing. You need to have a lot of people following your ideas and being sort of as well adapted to this developing system. But I also agree that, you know, perfection is not one thing. Perfection, by definition, in my book, is... uh, to get a million small things right, and this is lighter bottles and lighter, a more eco-friendly uh, packaging and mm-hmm. more less use CO two carbon footprint by Biodynamic. For those who've never been there, make a make an appointment and go there. The Gravitational system, the chilling system, the solar panels, it's really state-of the art. And then when they tell you when it, when it was built, it, I'm thinking it is, it is quite a leading, uh, a leading winery in, in that aspect as well. Now all of these things produce wines more economic and uh, more, more ecologically sustainable how do you get it economically sustainable as well i mean you, you need to pay the people and therefore you need you need to make some money out of it how does it work i mean can can you only just increase prices
3: <laughs> that's a good good question in some way you yeah you need to but uh, of course but uh, for increasing prices you need to do a good job in also making good wine, and then uh, at the very end, but also marketing marketing your, your wine. Yeah? Um, I think it's a, it's a it's a long way there where you need maybe to save costs in, on on other on other hands and uh, or other a- areas, and slowly, slowly, um, yeah, the, uh, being able to to afford it. But I think at um, the very end, it doesn't really cost that much more in working biodynamically or organically. I mean, maybe maybe at the beginning, maybe at the beginning you need to invest, but I think it's also a little bit life. I mean, if you want to become a master of wine or if you want to become, we just talked about the diploma, I mean, what, you, what are you doing? You need to invest time, you need to invest money, and and of course the risk is that you will never be a master of wine or diploma, or you will never get a diploma. I think that's a little bit similar with our approach in, in, in winemaking. And I think also here, of course, at the beginning, you need to learn. You need to invest. Maybe you do some some errors. It costs money. Uh, maybe it needs costs a little bit more time. But I think at the very end, on a long term, if we do the real balance uh, on the long term, um, of course, it's it's easier and it's it's faster to feed uh, our soils with with uh, chemical fertilizer. But at the very end, long term, it's more economically sustainable if we. If we if we think uh, differently about about our soils instead of just feeding them with with chemical fertilizers and that's why I think it depends how you do the calculation and um, yeah that's a little bit the the thing how what what yeah, the, our approach in a certain way. Thanks, Clements.
2: Just as we have talked about part of your uh, grape suppliers are still organic, and part of them is, is already changed to biodynamics. So, which, how much production is, is fully biodynamic certified, and
3: how much is organic? Mm, yeah, for our 55 are uh, all biodynamic, then I would say from the uh, 100 hectares of our farmers, I would say yeah, approximately 20 are not yet uh, organic or biodynamic certified. And from the 80 uh, hectares, I would assume that, um, yeah, maybe f- uh, half of it from those 80, half of yeah, not, not close, half is biodynamic, a little bit less maybe, and the rest is organic.
2: So that gives you a majority of biodynamically produced wines. In
3: total with ours, yes. Yeah.
2: All right. So... um The next subject I want to turn to is when I first visited, I I didn't realize, but your father already started quite early as a visionary as he was or still is. um, He started quite early to think about alternatives also with something that nowadays is in everybody's heads and mouths, but he, he was quite early realizing the problem coming up. Which is climate change and, and also the way of agriculture in your area. If I remember correctly, you have long-term trials with rather unusual grape varieties such as Tannat and others in in your uh, in your winery. Can you talk a little bit about that?
3: Yeah, we're extremely happy that my father was. Um, I don't know, maybe he got the right uh, sheet in his hand forty years ago. Uh, but he got his, by a coincidence interested in climate change, and with a good friend of him, Reinhard Tiork, who was also uh, the husband of uh, Elisabetta Foradori, who lived very near, and he was a, a, a crazy guy in a certain way, but very a very curious guy. And with him, he started to get interested in uh, in uh, yeah, dealing with new grape varieties because. Uh, reading already the first uh, climate models there was it was obvious that uh, or it was it seemed to be obvious that the climate would in a certain way change and it's nothing new i mean all oh, climate changed oh, always changed and the climate 100 years ago it was different than the climate today and it, for sure it will be different again in the next few 100 years maybe it, it should be become uh, a little bit more radical, maybe, or, but there was always a change, and he became interested in that, and he started to. Uh, I mean, we are lucky in Alto manage Of course, we can go high up and build uh, or uh, plant grape variety, grapes uh, on a higher altitude. The only problem is that, talking about monoculture, if you go high up, you also bring a monoculture to a more natural area in a certain way, where maybe before there was a forest standing. So. There, are, you can go high up, and you should maybe, but there is a certain limit I think what we need to respect. And another possibility is maybe dealing with skin and stem contacts. No, so you can dealing with skin and stem. The tenants you increase the salinity maybe of certain of certain um, grape varieties. But then an important one is what he started also 40 years ago when dealing with, uh, as you said, grapes from warmer climates as. Husan, Marsan, Tana from Reds, or as red, or Biogne petit monsieur, dealing uh Sauvignon. So, yeah, the, different different experiments uh, with grapes that are more or less coming from uh, southern parts, and he hoped that one day they would ripe, but maintain an acid, a, a beautiful acidity. What now? It's actually that that is the challenge. So. 30, 40 years ago, the question was always, how can we get our grapes right? Now it's the complete opposite. Now it's really, how can we, and we're talking about the northern region in Italy. Now it's really, how can we keep the, the, the freshness? How can we maintain the acidity? And and it's it's difficult to produce wines in Alto as being not having the need to acidify the wine. So it's it's getting more challenging. And especially with grape varieties as Gewürztraminer or Pinot Grigio grape varieties that are, very common and very popular in I they are tending much more to be a little bit more flabby a little bit more alcoholic and that's a little bit uh, i think what we need to find solution of and maybe dealing with new gray bodies could be one of them and so we need to observe that and and we are lucky to have uh experiments and trials that of tana that are more than yeah older than uh, 35 years that's impressive
2: it's um It's it's a rather very mind-boggling concept. I mean, we have the same situation or had the same situation in Germany where we used to cheptalize literally 8 out of 10 vintages just to get to 12 ABV. Mm -hmm. And now people are talking about desugarization of musts and and saying this has has changed so dramatically just within two decades, let's say. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah. And maybe and then, not only because of the climate. Of course, we are talking about different yields as well, especially here in Argentina. But I would say climate is a huge uh, factor. What, why this whole thing changed?
2: I, I, I strongly believe it's it's not only climate. I mean, in Germany, uh, viticulture has focused for more than 200 years in getting it ripe, getting it ripe, selecting mm-hmm. the better clones, the earlier ripening, the high sugar producing, the more uh, assimilation, uh, photosynthetic, active things, and now sort of nobody has has the older, more relaxed clones available anymore. Okay. But that's um, a different story. I, are you producing wines out of those uncommon southern varieties?
3: Uh, yes, um, I mean we have uh, two wines that are like for good in the assortment, which are uh, uh, Cazon. One is Casone Bianco, one is Casone Rosso. Casone Bianco is, uh, uh, more of a congreux, uh, uh, style with, uh, and then Masan the Massan, uh, sometimes a Chenille Blanc. And the red is, um, 85% of Tana, which for me is from a, from a red wine perspective, one of the most impressive, um, potential grape wine is white energy, I think, because it keeps a beautiful acidity. Uh, we harvested, for example, 16 or 17. We harvested with, uh, potential alcohol of 30.5 and, uh, and uh, tana always changes also the color of the stem. So it's, uh, to, to a more brown color. So that's a good sign that it's ripening, but with an acidity of 10 grams, uh, per, per liter. It's, we don't even have that on, on the whites. So it's impressive how tana might be, an interesting grapevine for the, the, our area but then we also have uh the comets which is um which is a project we, we started uh 2016, and, and we have more than 100 120 uh experiments each year which we sell, uh, bring in the cellar experiments could be yeah, as you said the uh, uh, new grape bodies we were experimenting or it could be what happens with the Pinot Bianco on, on the skin and stamp for six months or what happened with the, uh, Chardonnay when we don't solve for it, everything. I mean, we, we're a young team, we have many questions and we want to try to find answers. And uh, of course, we're going to do mistakes. And I think uh, a comment for us, uh, or let's say an experiment, it's extremely important for us to, to learn out of those mistakes. And a comet is something what we, yeah, we, it's, these are wines that, uh, we select every year five to six, seven, eight comets, uh, so experiments we bottle and we, uh, share with our customers, with our partners. And, uh, of course, limited quantities, uh, but a comet from a historical point of view, uh, is something that is in the sky, which leads you, which shows you also the the future a little bit, no? And in a very similar, way we're looking at those experiments. They help you to go, to get to know limits. They maybe, they help you to go beyond limits and and they help you to make mistakes and to learn out of those mistakes. And those comets or those wines uh, can be Anasirti uh, or Roussan, or it can be something, yeah, something, I wouldn't say that these are our best wines. That's not a Leuvengang where we try to perfect, optimize every single detail. But, uh, they are really wines that are maybe also forgotten for three, four years in the barrel in, in the last corner of our winery. And, and all of a sudden we, we discover them again. No? So this is a little bit the approach with those experiments and, and all the experiments which we bring them in the bottle as, uh, a comment.
2: Yeah. I, lo- I love your, your original. When you first told me, uh, I... Literally fell in love with the explanation of why you call them comets. <laughs> it's like it's like a shining star. It shows you the way, but it's not there always. So the next Correct. year, the comet might be a different one, or this one might just not be available until Correct. it comes yeah. around next time. Mm-hmm. Um, so now going back to to what we promised in the introduction is um, the interest in new varieties combating viticultural problems, maybe climate change or otherwise, such as tanad, Russan, Machsan. Um, but also, you have a, a strong interest in ancient, more or less forgotten, autochthonous Alto Adige varieties. Besides blatterly what, what else do you have? In Groncio Manzoni, which is not autochthonous, it's a, it's a, it's a cross. Mm-hmm. But w- what else do you have in, in that sector? Yeah.
3: Mm, yeah, it's interesting that in, in Alto Ange, we still have two autochthonous indigenous grapevines people know or talk about, No, and that's Chiava and Lagrange. But uh, 40, 50 years ago, we had uh, Blattele, and Frauela, a little bit of Portuguese, which is not indigenous in Alto Andergya, but was very well um, developed here. And especially Blattele was a grape variety that uh, was very popular. Um, Especially also in the Valle Zarco area. And then Blattale was, uh, um, was more in the Merano area. So I don't know how familiar you are with Alto But, um, yeah, we had three other indigenous grapevines and they completely got forgotten. And uh, they, mm-hmm. they were also forgotten. People forgot to register those grapes as uh, grapevines. So it's not even, oh, now, yes, because the institute the Lineburg Institute the Research Institute started to experiment with those again, and so now, finally, you can again, as of course, not a DOC wine, but you can grow them again since one year. no, but in the last forty years, uh, they were um, illegal to plant and to uh, to make wine out of it, and they were uh, yeah, luckily enough, there were certain fighters like Heinrich Meyer from Nusserhof, uh, for Blattele or certain small farmers for Schnaidtshuberhof uh, or Frauella, for example, or other small small farmers who are ha- keeping uh, secretly those old plants in a certain way now and fighting for the future of those indigenous grapevines. And um, we we contacted uh, certain farmers and also Heinrich Meyer, and we started to get interested in those uh, indigenous grapevines because I don't know maybe. The question was uh, our question was why why have they been here and what was the reason and could they be with a changing climate be interesting again in future and you you need to think that a Blattele for example forty years ago now everyone speaks about skin stem contact or uh, orange wine and these kind of things so forty fifty years ago this was completely normal because every single wine did at least uh, several hours was kept in, uh, in contact with skins and stems because normally you came uh the bull was coming to pick up the grapes in the field and the bull only came one once a day and that was the evening to pick every, the whole track uh and uh to track to and to bring it to the to the cellar in a certain way so the grapes that you do you harvest in the morning they kept there in the in the in the shi- uh, shiny sun for at least 12 hours and so already starting to macerate and, and ferment on on the skins and the stems and maybe this was something that this technique and this vinification with, the, uh, yeah, with the mechanization, everything uh, started to to change. And all of a sudden, people got rid of skin uh, of the the ox, and uh, they became, they got much faster to the winery, and techniques they changed. And also, in the in the in the cellar, you were not using any more skin and stem contact. So people forgot the interest in those gray bodies And Blaupaler has a very uh, thin uh, skin. And maybe, maybe it wasn't interesting enough anymore. And maybe also it was uh, maybe too sour because those grapes were uh, 40 years ago producing very uh, acidic wines, no? But that's why I think maybe bringing the, not the oxen back, but bringing the skin stem contact back uh, uh, and those grapes back. and And also maybe in a changing climate where those grapes are not that acidic maybe as 40 years ago, but maybe now in a, in the future they could be interesting again and it's i think yeah there w- there was a reason why they they have been here and it may might um be interesting for the future to have them again of course someone could also argue and say there's also a reason why they <laughs> why they don't exist anymore but that's something what we would like to discover and that's why we focused on those three ind- indigenous grape varieties and to replant them in our in our uh vineyards and uh let's see how how they develop and what um, experiences we're gonna make.
2: So as I mentioned, you um, you were generous enough to share uh, the latest or the, the the newest edition of a comet wine, which is a Blatterle with me, and um, we've tasted the wine. Could you uh, maybe tell us just briefly the the wine making techniques you applied to that particular wine? And then maybe we, we talk about the, the sensory profile of it.
3: Uh, yeah. Um, so Blattel is a, that's a wine, actually, that is not yet uh, released. And it's not going to be released this year in the coming years. We just bottled it. And we want to see how it develops, uh, with uh, how it ages, actually, in the bottle. So it might be released next year in two years. It's a very, uh, yeah, I would say fresh, <laughs> um, uh, approach. So it, of course, it was kept on skins and stems here as well for several weeks in order to get a little bit more out of the skin. Um, but it's a very raw version of Blatteland. So I was thinking twice before sending it to you because it's still very, uh, raw and, and unfinished in, from in my opinion. But as I said, uh, uh, here, the question was how blatale, uh develops when we bottle it, because normally we mainly we wait two three years before bottling the Blatterle, and this time we really wanted to make it the, the, the opposite and bottle it very early and to and to see uh, how it develop uh, develops in in the in the bottle
2: Thanks for sharing. It's a uh, it's it's a really nice wine. So uh, I would think, how do we want to do this? I just Go through my tasting notes so that everybody has an idea of of what this tastes like in this stage, and then we discuss a little further. Or do you want yeah. to go first? No, no, go ahead. No. So I would I would say it's it's an absolute bone dry white wine, and it shows pronounced aromas. There is ripe green and yellow kernel fruits such as apples and pears. There is some quince. There is quite some citrus notes, lemon and lemon scale, and. In the stage now, it it is slightly cloudy. So there there is, of course, yeasty aromas of dough and brioche. And there is a prominent note of cider, natural, unfiltered apple juice and some bruised apple. It's bone dry. It has an integrated, yes, vibrant, crisp acidity, medium plus body and a very rich and creamy mouthfeel. The alcohol, I would guess, from the tasting is at around thirteen it's moderate, fully integrated, and there is a touch of phenolic grip on the mid palate, which is just giving extra complexity and it is is not too much um then the finish is very long, lingering, it is absolutely very youthful, and it shows an excellent balance of all structural components and actually. I can't wait to see where this goes over the next four to six years. I think it's a it's a good representative of of what you call a comet within the concept.
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I'm I'm very, also very curious how it will develop because as um, as you mentioned, uh, I forgot to say that uh, it's unfiltered. So also here the question is what happens with with an unfiltered wine and uh, with bladder unfiltered blatter in this bottle and how it will develop. You know, and the alcohol is very low. It's eleven. If I'm not mistaken. I, I also only have wow. the unlabeled um version, but it's quite uh quite low. It's strange that also uh, soil and of are producing predominantly uh, from most most of the time very low alcoholic um, wines, which is an absolute plus in the future. As
2: I think so as yeah, well. Yeah, as as we have talked that now we we are looking into des desugarization of musts and you know and getting. Getting those unbalanced high ABVs out of the way, and and uh, are struggling with that
3: now. Yeah, but I think this is also something what we need to learn from the beginning, because so far uh, we were all, always looking for clones who were producing sugar and producing at the same time certain uh, yields, and and I think now uh, and we were going out out there and and look measuring sugar in a certain way before harvest, you know which, uh, in my opinion, doesn't make any sense at all anymore. And there's another possibility measuring acidity. And also here in our energy, it doesn't make any any sense at all because sugar is always too high and acidity is always too low uh, nowadays. Huh? And so I think also here, our approach needs to be especially different when deciding the harvest time. And this is something what uh, we need to get better in general, I think uh, uh, a lot better in defining defining ripeness and uh, we especially we we define ripeness to crunchiness and so there's this moment where the grape is extremely in this crunchy phase where uh, it's like a salad that you would pick you know and and three day if you put the salad three days in the fridge it starts to get a little bit I don't know it's it's shriveled so how do you say that Uh, it's losing its tension and I think this is what we don't want to find in, in our wines and in the grapes so we need to point out really try to find the right harvest time to find this crunchiness. I think this is something what general we need to change our approach of of the ripeness in, in making. It. Yeah.
2: You mentioned yield quite a few times. What what's what's the yielding capacity of of Fasolin and Frauele and Plattele? Can can you bring them to to a high yield or are they really
3: scarce in, in production? they should they shouldn't be that um they shouldn't be that low uh, to be very honest forso uh what we saw uh now in the last years was was quite low in our field but maybe we did a mistake because we uh put it on the on the geo system instead of the pergola and forso of course uh, normally was all of those three were uh, all uh, trellis on, on, um, or uh, how do you say, yeah, um, trellised on, on Bervula. So maybe I think this could be, um, yeah, a, a game changer. And Lattel is doing quite okay, um, from the yields. So, uh, you do also 60, uh, 60, yeah, 55, 60 per hectare on the system, And Frauela is also a little bit lower there.
2: So you, you can really make it sort of sustainable while growing it yeah, I yeah. Think so yeah so within those 2020 comets can you sort of lift the blanket and tell us what other wines will be in that range in in, in the comet section
3: yeah i can tell you so one is going to be um i told you before that about the the friendship with Reinhard ciric and ciric was uh, yeah husband of Elisabetta foradori and he was um, he had, was a crazy and variable very knowledge guy. And he, um, had his own private selection of 300 different varieties from all over the world. He really, uh, was flying o- around the world and uh, collecting uh, branches and bringing those branches to Alto Adige. And, uh, we have a, a plot of his, um, his collection or his private selection, and there are more than 300 uh, grape varieties in that, uh, red, white, all together, all mixed. And uh, in the last few years, we differently have had a different approach uh, on that plot. So uh, last year, we we harvested or we vinified the red grapes as white wines, uh, as a white wine, and the white as a, as a red, so longer skin and stem contact. And this year, for example, uh, we're gonna vinify the reds as red and the white as white. So it's going to be a red wine this year. Last year, actually, it was a white wine. So it, um, this is, yeah, and it's going to be called tea because it's an homage on his, uh, his person and that he was called Tirok. And so it's, a, a, a uh, uh, assemblage of, uh, uh, or field blend of those 300 different grape bodies, red and white mix, for example. That's one. And, um, and there will be a, a souvenir gris, uh, a, a blend of three different vintages of souvenir gris, and which were kept on whole cluster. Uh, and yes, and several more. So I can't list everything, but. yeah, two. sure. <laughs> two of them.
2: So, so souvenir gris is a PB variety, right? Correct. yeah so that that's a new crossing pv is, is a german word which stands for pilz widerstandsfähig which is translated into a high tolerance or high resistance to fungal diseases just uh, for those who are not so familiar with suveniringori as there is the last question about with within the time frame having a field blend and making whites in a red style, a red in a white style, is nothing really new. I mean, it, it was the very tradition was a yeah. field blend. And also, you've been mentioning the pergola. So now we have we have sort of several um, ideas that you follow of ancient techniques. That's having ancient varieties which are adapted to the region having a field blend mixed, which is a traditional uh, method. And so my question is to what you mentioned before, do you see more coming advantages of using a pergola system instead of the modern machine adapted Guyot or cordon training systems?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And um, of course you need to keep on track on the the yield because pergola actually, produce way too much um, grapes, so you need to cut them down, you need to be behind, but I think from a climate uh, perspective, it can be very interesting and because of two uh, arguments. One, it gives you shape uh, to the grapes, of course, so it uh, protects a little bit more the grapes. Um, but I would say the more interesting argument is because it has... Um, it has of course more uh, wood or let's say uh, old wood. So the pergola is a trellising system, which is higher and of course uh, longer. And um, because of that, I think the pergola has the possibility to where you can increase, again, the quantity, the yield, but without immediately losing quality. And I think on the yield system, if you want to increase a little bit the yield, you, you suffer immediately, the, the, the quality suffers immediately. And I think in future, I mean, I, I remember when, we, when, when I started working in the wine, in the wine business um, 15 years ago uh, in, on my first trips, um, everyone was so proud saying, yeah, I only produced 30, 35 hectoliters from this uh, vineyard and, and and so on. Everyone thought that if you produce only thirty, thirty-five hectoliters from a hectare, it must be a mind-blowing wine. And that was maybe the case. But the problem is, I think in the future, with a changing climate, and we already reduced the uh, yield in the past, um, the wine grapes are getting too concentrated. And I think that's why... Uh, We should aim for a little bit higher yield. I don't want to uh, go in the other direct uh, extreme direction, but at least a tiny bit. We need to increase it to have more um, balanced um, concentration and not too concentrated grapes, because then it it, it, it would lead us to to alcoholic wines. And I think increasing the 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 yield a little bit could be the parallel could be interesting again. Thank you, Clemens. Um, we are about
2: close to our finish time where we have a few more minutes and uh, I would say thank you very much for for all your explanation and thank you for sharing all that insight into your winery um, thanks for having me in your home and thank, thanks for sharing, sharing all of this with the Italian Wine Podcast um, if thank there you is very a- much If there is any questions from the audience that might be interested or questions from Stevie or Laika or Joy, that would be a good time now.
1: Okay. So
0: very great job, you guys. Uh, Thank you so much. That was so exhaustive. and very very complete podcast indeed. We've learned so much about Lageda and his philosophy of wine uh, making. Um, I will entertain. It's getting kind of late, but I will entertain one question if anybody has a question. Like, um, like, do you have? Have you got a question for Alloy? Uh,
1: actually, I have one curious question because I was also um, reading an article in Grape Collect Collective um, about. Um, your interview Um, Clemens uh, you mentioned that you you met Rudolf you you knew something about this but when you started uh, okay so sorry here's my question Um, when did you really start really wanting to pursue about biodynamic wine wine making personally yes
3: um, when I studied sociology uh, Mm -hmm. during my sociology studies and I wasn't so sure if I want to join the winery at that time and um, we were extremely happy that our father gave us the possibility to do whatever we wanted to and then if we wanted we could come back and uh, so during the, my sociology studies um, I started to read it and it was impressive it was extremely difficult as well and maybe I, I don't know for sure I didn't really understood what he was saying. But, um, yeah, it was interesting impulses. And I think that's a little bit how I see Baal and, and the ideas of Ordo Shannon. More as impulse, more as, uh, ideas. And I mean, he, he talked also a lot and a lot of heavy stuff. So, um, yeah, you need to take certain things out of his theories. But, um, uh, in my opinion, not, it's not exaggerated in a certain way, but it triggered me. And that's why I, I yeah, I, uh, I, I I started to to read more and to yeah to were eager to learn a little bit more about it.
0: Okay, great. I think that is all. I'm going to wrap this up and close up the room. I just want to remind everybody. Um, thank you. First of all, Clemens, thank you so much for joining yeah, thank us, you Stefan. Much, what a great TV. job! And um, I just want to remind everyone. Next week we're going back to the 6 p.m. slot, our usual time. Um Julian Farker will be interviewing Amanda Courtney. The week after that, Ashley Howell with Piluca Proietti and then Victoria Cecchi with um Michael Schmelzer Sh- and Fanny Brule with Federico Giuntini and Gatifa Silvapiana. Wayne Young with uh, the Rapuzzi brothers, on and on and on. So we have, we have a complete um, calendar up to April all set to go. So you hope you can join us. And don't forget to subscribe to Italian Wine Podcast. And have a good night, everyone. Ciao, ragazzi. Ciao. Thanks
1: so Thank you so much.
0: Thank you
3: very much. Ciao, everybody.
1: Listen to the Italian Wine Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.